0: Okay. Good afternoon. Is the mic on? It's working? Okay, good. Um, so I'm honored, honored to be here. It's always fun to come back. Um, and uh, I always remark when I come back, like, where are the people? Like the big difference between the Berkeley campus and the Stanford campus is it feels so empty out there. But it's quiet and peaceful and you can hear the birds chirp. Um, but anyway, great to be here. I walked into this room and had a shock at the new furniture. Um, So that's progress. Uh, So I'm going to talk about, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the new work. Um, I was a little torn about that because I'm not sure I'm quite ready to talk about it articulately. So just bear with me. I'm just going to talk about it and you can let me know where the gaps are and what you don't understand. Um, So given that, I'm going to start with um, kind of a little bit of grounding in the theoretical and conceptual space that I work in. Then I'm going to talk some about some work that actually um, Kathleen O'Connor and I did um, looking at kids' understandings of uh, racial stereotypes. <clears throat> and Sarah Wishneer was a part of that work as well. And then I'm going to move into some of the new work in Oakland looking at um, all black, all male courses that are a part of a manhood development, a district wide manhood development initiative in Oakland Unified. Um, and looking at looking at specifically the ways that new opportunities for identity development get constructed and made available to kids in the context of that program Uh, so i think i just did that that's my outline Um, so my work takes up several big questions right and and i work in the space of as prudence mentioned of looking at interactions between race identity and learning so specifically my work is concerned with how we understand and account for the processes of culture race and racial stratification in relation to schooling and learning what role identity plays in this process and how identities are made available in learning settings right we've tended to think about identities as something people bring to learning settings my work looks at what it is um, the identities that learning settings make available to students when they arrive there and then what are some possibilities for repositioning or creating new identity opportunities for students So I'm going to focus today not necessarily on addressing each of those really big questions that kind of underlie my program of research, but rather to look at one set of processes in relation to these questions. That is, the role of racial stereotypes, the management of them by students and by the adults in their lives, and how these processes of um, stereotyping, positioning, and management play out in classrooms. And as I do so, I'm going to draw on data from a few different studies, and think with you a bit about how identity takes shape in learning settings in relation to stereotypes specifically and how those stereotypes can be um, debunked. Oh now Claude is in the room, now I have to be nervous. <laughs> I, was, I was all ready for Linda now, both of you. Um, so I guess I should also say that one of the things that I've been wrestling with lately is how to understand this connection between race and stereotypes And not just the experience of schooling kids are having, but the actual process of learning. So I guess I'll say up front that, you know, I just edited a special issue of human development on this where, you know, we invited several groups of scholars amazing folks to to do papers looking at this and we felt like each of the papers my paper included didn't quite get at this intersection between the learning process and these processes of race but it feels like we're kind of inching towards being able to talk about that so you can kind of keep that in the in the back of your mind that that's one of the big things that i'm that i'm struggling with and clearly um i should say that financial resource allocation is a big part of that picture, right, because obviously if, you, if you're not being, <clears throat> if children are not being given the um, settings within which opportunities to learn are being made available, then learning doesn't happen, right. So that's one story of the way that race and learning interact. It's an old story. We know it well. Um, a lot of work on it. But I feel like, um, while that's an important story, there are also all these kind of tertiary processes that come into play, one of those being, for me, the ways that we as a society think about race and the kind of ideological resources that students have access to. So I'm trying to think about kind of that second level of interactions between race and learning. that make sense? Okay, so if, as I'm talking, if... Um, If questions about, if kind of clarification questions come up or you're not following me or you don't understand what I'm saying or if I'm talking too fast, which I tend to do, just kind of throw up a hand. Big questions, conceptual questions, idea questions, save those till the end, and we'll get into a great discussion at the end. Okay. All right, so a couple of um, definitions up front. I'm going to use the term race a lot. I'm going to use the term identity a lot. You might ask, what do you mean by those? Um, So when I talk about race, I draw on a definition by um, Michael Omi and Howard Wynott, um, race is a concept which signifies and symbolizes social conflicts and interests by referring to different types of human bodies. And what I like about this, this definition is that <clears throat> it recognizes, on the one hand, that race is socially constructed, right? There's nothing biological about it, um, but, but that the biological is referred to in the social construction and that its purpose, the purpose of the concept of race, is this symbolizing social conflicts and interests, right? So it's about access, right? The very existence of the concept of race is about access to resources. Okay. I also talk a lot about identity. Um, I think about identity as a sense of self constructed from available social categories in everyday interaction, taken up by individuals and ascribed by cultural groups and social settings. And again, for me, it's important to acknowledge both the parts of identity that are internal, like the ways that you're processing thinking about yourself in relation to the world around you, and the parts that have to do with how you're positioned in a a social setting, that they are both taken up and ascribed, and that these processes of everyday interaction are really central to the kinds of identities people take up. Like that belief is, is really at the heart, the heart of my work. <clears throat> so, I, I draw on several kind of big ideas and theories in the literature to help me think through um, what an analysis that would account for race and learning would look like. I'm going to talk about four different kind of sets of ideas, um, and they don't come back. I'm not going to wrap it neatly in the end of the talk, so you can think about these as kind of um, big ideas hanging in the background that underlie how I'm understanding these processes. Okay, so the first is <clears throat> so, sociocultural theory and, and ecological accounts of development and learning. And sociocultural theory supports the idea that the, the real action in terms of understanding social processes is at the level of cultural practices, right? So the, the ways that people engage with one another as a part of their daily life um, and sees deep connections between the internal psychological world and the external world, right? <clears throat> so this draws on the, the Vygotskian school as well as Bronfenbrenner. Neo-Vygotskians to argue that if you want to understand processes of learning in relation to culture, and I would a- extend in relation to race, <clears throat> that you have to focus on the local setting, lo- both local and distal context, and the ways that multiple layers of conflict- context impact what's happening in a learning setting. There's also a-, a focus on cultural practices, as I said, the construction of everyday life and the way that those everyday activities that we engage in with one another become sites. For identity and learning and uh, the construction of identities. Um, that there's uh, attention to be to, called towards looking at cultural artifacts and social interactions. So, what's the stuff that we're using to make sense of the world and how are we interacting with one another around it? And that as you're engaging in that activity with others, you're doing so towards socially and culturally defined goals, right? So, all of those together uh, give us ways to understand. Um, how the social context influences learning and developmental processes. So more recently I've been thinking about <clears throat> um, these, um, this metaphor of pathways as a way to understand how you can think about both the ways that society creates particular options and sets of options for people, but the way that we're also agentic in how we take those up and, and um, craft a a set of choices so this draws on the work of anthropologist David Plath Um, and Plath argues that our life trajectories can be captured with this metaphor of pathways right and pathways are culturally constructed sets of choices but they're constrained right so it's a way of thinking about present choices as, as being embedded within longer term trajectories and some of these trajectories are more open to some than to others, right? So like the dirt road on this picture, you can think of a cultural pathway as a well-worn path. It doesn't determine your direction, but it certainly facilitates a set of choices, because I don't know about you, I'm not getting ready to go walk off into that grass. Um, so it's, but it's not that you can't. The pathway just kind of leads you toward a particular way, and I use this as a metaphor. It helps me think about the ways that big ideas about race and who can be what and what your what your trajectory is based on race and place, the ways that that opens up, that alone opens up or constrains particular sets of choices for you. I've also been drawing on two theories that both get at kind of a similar thing, um, the ways that social environments read us as certain kinds of people and treat us accordingly, positioning or hailing us into particular identities, right? So first, positioning comes from the work of Hari and and, and, um, Holland, Um, look at the ways that our social and cultural spaces and and, uh, uh, through admissible social acts, the distribution of rights and duties, and available storylines, this notion of storylines is going to come back, um, allow us, afford us to be a particular kind of person in a social setting, right? And the ways that how other people respond to you, um, what rights you're given, what responsibilities you're given, what rights you are not given, and um, the storylines that guide your interaction with others, how those things tell you a story about who you can be and who you can't be. Similar to this notion of positioning is Althusser's notion of hailing. Um, has to do with how environments and our social actors recruit us into particular subject positions within a social system. And for Althusser, this happens both through interaction and through the existence of dom- the existence of dominant ideology. So I feel like what what, what the notion of hailing adds is that Althusser is deeply concerned with the ways that power plays out and gets reproduced through interaction. So the concept of hailing is not politically neutral in the way that positioning kind of can be. It's a way that dominance and marginalization occur, right? And that's really important to kind of understand the, the, these processes of race that I'm that I'm wrestling with. Does that make sense? You with me? Okay. <clears throat> so I also want to make clear that I think about schools um, not as neutral institutions, but very much as cultural institutions, right? Schools are culturally lived and experienced by students and teachers and administrators as they move their way through them. Um, They are culturally organized, guided by norms, conventions, artifacts, and social interaction. They are potential spaces of empowerment, marginalization, and identity building. And they're spaces where cultural and identity trajectories are offered and taken up. So when I move towards the end of the talk, it actually comes up throughout. As students are talking about their experiences in schools, I want you to keep in mind that, for me, schools are these um, cultural spaces in multiple kinds of ways. Okay, so I'm going to make basically four, well, I don't know if I'm going to make these arguments. These four core arguments underlie what I'm going to be talking about today. You see how I'm hedging all of my claims? (laughs) Um, The first is that racial storylines and I'm using the term storylines very consciously rather than stereotypes and I'll come back to that in a moment But racial storylines are prevalent in our society and have powerful implications for learners these racial storylines are a critical aspect of life in schools and they racially and academically socialize students right so they are not just present kind of broadly in society they're invoked and take up life in schools and students talk about this in really profound and heartbreaking ways as these storylines are invoked in school settings, certain identities are made available, imposed, or closed down. So the very presence of these storylines open up or close down opportunities for identity development, and that identities—identities that identities as learners, identities as thinkers, identities as academicians, identities as college-bound students—are critical for engagement in learning settings and thus for learning. And I don't know if any of you have read some of my earlier work. I. <clears throat> have a couple of pieces where I make a really strong argument for the nature of the connection between identity processes and learning processes, right? Okay, there it is. Oh, I forgot I put that in there. Uh, I don't think I'm going to talk about it much, though. So I've made the argument in other work that that learning, identity, and goals are connected via these bi-directional arrows. And maybe I'll just say a little bit about this this bi-directional arrow, which is to say that as people participate in learning settings and, and, and um, do the tasks of those learning settings and engage the learning that happens in those spaces, their identities as learners in those settings are strengthened. Right? As those identities as learners in those settings are strengthened, they are more likely to take up more tasks in relation to learning in those settings. So the point is really just that as people um, are successful at learning tasks, their identities as learners um, increase, and that, that's a cycle that kind of builds on itself. That's all I'll say about that for now, but there's a whole article about it if you want to read it. <laughs> um, so, this point about storylines. <clears throat> so the, the literature talks quite a bit about racial stereotypes. Um, and the notion and, and and we know from the work of you know folks in this room that stereotypes are a very powerful determinant of, of people's experience. I want to use the term um, storylines and think about stereotypes as racial narratives or or storylines that are lived, used, and invoked, in part because I want to emphasize that lived part, right, that to think about these are um, storylines that we use to make sense of, recreate, resist our experiences in the world, right? So So the stereotypes don't just, they're not just plop down in the middle of something we invoke them, we live them, we recreate them, we resist them as we interact with one another. <clears throat> they represent, These storylines represent common ways of thinking. They're artifacts that organize our perceptions and opinions. And, and perhaps most importantly, these narratives are relational. And this will come back in a moment, that negative stereotypes about African Americans and Latinos are intimately related to positive stereotypes about white and Asians. They're two sides of the same coin. Right? So to say, as I'm going to come back to talking about, Asians are good at math implies something about African-Americans, Latinos, and other, and other racial groups um, in a way that you know, I, I think that we can sometimes see positive stereotypes as harmless, and they're harmful in multiple kinds of ways. Okay, so a little bit of data. So these, um, you can't read that chart, it's too small. I haven't found a good way to display it anyway, which is why I just kind of shrunk it. It's a little bit of a trick. Um, <laughs> but, I'm still revising the paper on that, Uh, but uh, this comes from a study um, looking at upper elementary and middle school students in the South Bay, um, students from a range of racial groups, and what we were trying to understand is, um, my research questions, are elementary and middle school students aware of racial stereotypes about who's good at school and who's good at math, and do they endorse, do they hold these stereotypes? That's the first set of questions. The second set of questions was for students from groups who are negatively stereotyped, specifically African-American and Latino students in the study, how do they manage the burden of being potentially stereotyped? And what do these forms of management mean for their engagement and achievement in school? All right, so the study was multi-method. We recruited a diverse sample of about 150 students. Half of those students were 4th and 5th graders, half were 7th and 8th graders. Um, we uh, gave them a survey uh, to look at, the, their in both their knowledge of stereotypes, what they felt like other people believed, and their endorsement of those stereotypes, whether they personally believe them or not. Um, we also did um, another. We also chose a group of target students, 12 students, again half fourth and fifth graders, half seventh and eighth graders, and um, observed them for six months in their mathematics classrooms and interviewed them. I think two, two times, two times. Um, to get their notions and their perspectives on how they were understanding themselves in school as students as members of racial groups and in relation to these stereotypes and the, all of our focus students were African American and Latino students a range of um, achievement levels okay so what we found um, first not surprisingly none of this is particularly surprising um, but surprising that the research hadn't documented it before. Uh, I used to say that everything I, everything I studied, my grandmother actually could have told you. Um, but we're about evidence. So kids believe, kids... <laughs> finding number one, kids believe, and kids across racial groups believe, that our society believes that Asians and white students are smarter and better at math. So in other words, kids recognize that these stereotypes about school and about math exist. Okay. Um, by and large, kids come to endorse these stereotypes by middle school so that what you see when you look closely at the data is that um, the, both, mm, both the understanding of the, the existence of the stereotypes and kids' own endorsement of them increase as you move from elementary school to middle school. Right? And, and lastly, and I think it's particularly interesting, that for African American and Latino students, they were more aware of the existence of stereotypes, but less likely to endorse them themselves. And I used to have this graph; I couldn't find it last night when I was pulling things together. That sh- that showed the kind of degree of difference here, which is really extreme. And and it, what you see when you when you look at the graph is that what is so interesting about that to me is that here you have a set of kids who are really hyper aware of how other people are viewing them, and and. Not believing these negative stereotypes about themselves, and like, what do you do with that gap? Like, what's the management that has to happen in that understanding of other people viewing you as not being smart and not being good at school, and you not believing yourself? Um, So that was what we turned to look at with the with the target students, and one of the things we um, we saw in the data is that students had different approaches to managing that gap. Right, one approach that was pretty successful in terms of academic success, was just simply being unaware that the stereotypes existed. So there were a subset of kids who didn't, didn't know that there were racial stereotypes about school and about math, and that proved to be pretty promising for their academic achievement. Um, of course, the problem with it is that by seventh grade, there are no kids left in this cell, um, so it's a, it's a short, short-term solution, um, but it works. The second strategy was kids who decided, well, if this is what folks believe about me, then it must be true, and I'm just going to take this up, right? And I'll give you some examples in a moment of a couple of these. Um, so these, these were kids who just went with it. Hey, you think I'm, I'm not smart and I don't engage in school? Huh? Well, I won't then. Um, that proved to be pretty, as you can imagine, pretty detrimental for their, for their achievement. Um, these were kids were, that were pretty much at the bottom achievement-wise in, in classes um, and unengaged. Uh, the third strategy, which is a little bit interesting, is students who said, yeah, you know, these stereotypes about blacks and Latinos are true, but this doesn't apply to me. So in general, other folks like me are like that, but I'm different, right? That was relatively successful academically, but it made for students who, were, who, were, who, who engaged and did the work, but who were afraid to take risks, and it seemed as though they felt like they were at risk of being exposed in a certain kind of way. So there was almost like an emotional undercurrent that felt um, a a little bit unhealthy. Um, Like they were at risk of being found out, right? So the kind of classic stereotype threat. Um, And then the final category were kids who just straight up resisted the stereotypes, who said, other people believe this about my group. I don't believe it. It's not true. I know plenty of counter examples of it and let me prove you wrong. And there's something, I was talking with someone about, I was talking with Will Perez about this last week who came to Berkeley to give a talk, who graduated from from Stanford here, um, about this notion of let me prove it wrong and how powerful that is in kind of kids' academic lives. Um, So there will be some writing coming up on that. But anyway, these were kids who did did exactly that. It was very successful in terms of an academic strategy because they were kids who were in the classroom proving how smart they were, right? Raising their hands, being hyper-engaged. So let me give you some examples. Um, So this is an example of a student who takes up the stereotype. And again, you'll notice that the stereotype she takes up is not necessarily a negative stereotype about her own group, but it's a positive stereotype about another group, right? So she says, um, well, like, sometimes I, like, what I think is that, like, not to be racist or anything, kids say that a lot, anytime we're talking about race, but, like, Chinese people are really good at math because Carrie, Jacqueline, and Lariana come, I mean, Julie, Sarah, come all from that person, saying they're all Asian. Also, Americans like Aiden, they're very good at math. And the interview says, okay, so what makes you think that? And she says, well, they're always, you know, speeded up, and the rest they're fine, but they're not the ones that are speeded up. They just take their time and talk to their um, partners and everything, and they're just the ones that are concentrating and writing all these problems down and, you know, finishing up first. So there's a lot that's so interesting in this this transcript, this notion that finishing first is what makes you smart, right? But what you see here is that she seems to make sense of um, some stereotypical generalizations about Chinese people and Americans. And these were based on particular students in her class who she perceived to be good at math, which to her meant to complete the problems quickly. And this belief that an out group has a particular academic strength as implications for in-group members right because it's an implied belief that your group doesn't measure up and this showed up in her anxiety her personal anxiety about measuring up in relation to other students so this is an example of a student who resisted the stereotypes we call him Darius Darius was really aware of the negative stereotypes about his group but he didn't endorse them very strong student and he felt that it was his responsibility to prove the to disprove the negative stereotypes uh, So the interviewer says, okay, and some people also say that kids from certain groups don't do as well as other kids. Have you heard anything like that? He says, yeah, blacks and Mexicans. And (laughs) those kids use that term. (laughs) Hilarious. Yeah. Uh, Yeah? And he says that they they don't do good because once they're old, they're in jail and everything. Because mostly in jail it's blacks and Mexicans, so they don't do well. They don't have anything in life to do. Um, And the interviewer says, okay, what do you think about that? He says, I don't think it's true at all because I know a lot of blacks and Mexicans that are very smart and talented, have a career. And a life right and then he goes on to talk about his own academic life again so much to analyze in this in this transcript this notion of um, mostly in jail right it seems to for me to invoke the societal narrative about black men in jail the notion of they don't have anything in life to do came up over and over again a certain kind of uselessness or uh, purposelessness in society that came up in kids talk around this Um, but I I think most importantly for our purposes today is that Um, It shows this knowledge of the negative stereotypes and a a really a way of being able to articulate them, but again, a deep belief that they are not true and kind of a confidence in that belief that underlied his own um, way of interacting in school and in the classrooms. Really, really powerful. Uh, So this is a lot of words. I know better than put up all these words on a screen, but... It's just so interesting, and I wanted you to be able to see it. So this data actually comes from one of my students' um, dissertation studies. His name is Neil Shah. He's just, just finished up at Berkeley. And he, you know, w- our work kind of converged on this issue of looking at um, stereotypes around Asians in math. And this is just a beautiful example. It comes from an African-American male student at a high school um, in the East Bay who was very successful in math. And Nero's interview protocol asks about specifically stereotypes about Asians in math, right? So the interviewer says, do you think those stereotypes are affecting non-Asian kids in their math experiences? And the kid, Will, says, yeah, because this is my personal experience. But if I see, like, I'm pretty sure if a black kid sees an Asian kid get an A on a test, it's like, I wish I could do that, or I'm never going to do that because it must have been because for him it's super easy, it's like he's super smart and I'm nowhere near as smart as him. I'm never going to be able to do that. So it affects him mentally, which in turn affects the outcome of his or her performance. So he's making this argument about the existence of the stereotype, how that causes kids to interpret what happens in their daily life, and then how it causes them to interpret themselves in relation to that. Right? Then the interviewer says, have you seen that affect friends of yours in that way? And Will says, because of someone else's performance, yeah, there are kids in the class who see other kids get A's. Well, it's like one of my friends. He saw me get an A, and he had they had me pinned for the stereotypical African-American male who wasn't going to do good in math. Again, this recognition and the power of these stereotypes in kids' lives. He saw me get an A, and he thought he was going to be able to get an A, but then he wasn't. And then he saw me as like, oh, you're hecka smart. You must have some Asian in you. <laughs> and so you see like, the persistence of this stereotype, even in the face of a very strong counter right? Which is again how the stereotypes come to shape students' opinions and perceptions in really, really powerful ways, and why you know I, we had one of the reviewers to the to the paper of the data I just showed you say, "Well, maybe it's just that kids are observing what's happening in the world around them, and Asians really are smarter at math, right?" And again, so you see the what do you even say, like, <laughs> but you see the, the, the persistence of the stereotype to shape the interpretation of the world, right? That's just mind-boggling for me. Um, and the other point about this is that this notion that Asians are good at math gets used by Will's classmate not only to make sense of his performance, but also to position him in a particular kind of way, right? To say that you are not allowed to take up the space as a smart black student. If you are a smart student, you must attribute that to some underlying Asianness in you. right? So there's this positioning that happens through the deployment of that stereotype in a really interesting way. Right? Okay. Um, so uh, this data comes from another one of my students' dissertations. We wrote a paper on it together, which is why I, I put it here. Um, and I'm not going to say a lot about this, though. I, I would, and if she were here, I would encourage her to say a whole lot. Aaliyah Holman is her name. Um, she did a study looking at the ways that parents racially socialize their kids, and in particular in relation to school. Um, so these are African-American kids, African-American parents. And um, in looking at the data, we, um, she, she talks about three ways that parents work to um, support their students in managing these stereotypes. And I, and I guess I want to say, to begin with, just because it's fascinating, is that one of the first things she found is that parents' racial socialization, parents' acts of racial socialization happened usually in response to some racialized incident at school. Right? So by and large, when parents chose to talk to their kids about race, it was in response to something that was happening in the kids' lives almost 90% of the time that, something, that racial something was happening at school. So that's kind of just interesting in and of itself. So what did parents do when these things came up? They worked to reframe students' expectations and prepare them for discrimination, right? So um, the notions of this is what it means to be a black person in the world, to be a black person in school, to be a black male in in interacting with police on the street, right? So there was a lot of, like, kind of preparatory talk. But they also taught, and this is what I want to focus on for just a moment, that they also taught students strategies to minimize racial harm And one of the ways that they taught students to minimize racial harm was to present themselves in ways that were counter to the stereotypes that other folks were laying on them. Uh, And then finally, they intervened as advocates on the part of their children, modeling a proactive approach to combating racism. So this quote at the bottom just illustrates that second strategy, minimizing harm through kind of self-presentation. And this parent says, this is a parent of, I think, a 16-year-old African-American boy, Um, young man. She says, there's a certain demeanor that I think you need to have because they expect, for some, they expect the worst from us. And this is what she's telling her child. I always tease him. You got to go represent. You do. I'm teaching him to have a relationship with his teachers because they tend to look at us as, okay, you're probably here under a grant. Are you here for sports? I mean, it's human nature. So I encourage him to have a relationship with them. Go in, ask the questions, be involved, be attentive, right? Which are behaviors that any parent would encourage their child to do. But it's particularly interesting for me that she does this as a way of representing and a way of um, helping students debunk the stereotypes for their instructors. Right? So it's this way of kind of carrying yourself through the world. Um, so all of this to say that one of the things that comes up in this work around race is that sometimes the, one of the responses I get, I'm trying not to touch the microphone again, okay. Uh, it, one of the responses that I get is, well, you know, our students, students aren't really encountering racism in schools these days, right? Like, and so when you, and, and so it's always in the back of my mind when I'm talking to kids and when we're talking to parents and we're doing this work. And it's, it continues to be tremendously striking and heartbreaking how much kids are wrestling with race in schools again and again and again across sites, across ages, that it's really salient in their lives. And as we come to the place of thinking that it's not, we don't give them the support that they need to manage it, right? And this is what some of the parents realized, actually. There were parents who said, you know, I, I initially thought I didn't have to have these conversations with my child, and then he came home and said this, right? And so the work for me is bringing, bringing up how important it is that we continue to do this work in helping kids kind of understand and react to racism in the world that, that, they, that they encounter. Okay, it's about 10 more minutes. So, the work in Oakland, I think, has been a, um, we've been doing this work for the past couple of years. Um, As you may know, I think it was 2009, um, 2008, 2009, the Oakland Unified School District established um, an African American Male Achievement Initiative. It was unprecedented across the country, Uh, an office within the district funded by outside of the district, which is also interesting, um, that was focused specifically on raising the achievement of African-American male students in Oakland Unified across grade levels, right? They have lots of, lots of things that the initiative is doing. One of the core things, like kind of their central program, are these manhood development, the manhood development program, which offers classes to incoming ninth-grade African-American students. They've also started up in some of the middle schools, and this this year added on a tenth-grade cohort. So this is a class normal part of the school day, one period a day. What's really interesting about it, it's not taught by a credentialed teacher from the school. It's taught by a community person. Right? So it's usually there's six or seven different teachers, different instructors um, throughout the district. But they are all what they share is they are all folks who grew up in the community. And when I say in the community I mean in the black community and primarily in low-income black communities. Um, folks who have kind of gone on to do youth development work or been successful in other arenas and are coming back to kind of give. So these are not people with a full teaching load all day long. They come to do this class, and then they go. That's it's important for it. comes back as being important for a number of reasons. One is because um, they, tend, they are all black men teaching the classes, and they tend to be um, relatively young or relatively kind of you know, just post-college to about mid-30s. Okay, so classes held every day are after school, led by African-American instructors. Anything else you need to know about that? Um, the curriculum was relatively open. They had a couple of um, kind of sets of curricula that, that instructors could build their curriculum from. But their philosophy in hiring the instructor was basically, we, we're going to get people who know how to do this work, who know how to do youth development work, who know how to talk to kids, interact with kids, um, understand them, and we're going to let them kind of do their thing. So that's really the... The premise given that what happens across the sites is remarkably coherent so let me say a little bit about what we did as researchers studying these places and then I'll tell you a little bit about what we're seeing and I'm mainly going to talk from the video data today Um, so we decided that the best place for us to focus our our limited resources with this work was to um, Try to understand what was happening inside these manhood development classes. Again, these are all black, all male spaces in the context of a public school, as a normal part of the school day. Yes, every day. Yeah, uh, for a period a day. And then one of the middle schools, it's an after school. It's in an after school context, so that's like three hours a day. Um, So we wanted to focus on actually looking at what was happening inside of these spaces with respect to identity, with respect to helping kids think about their lives in school differently, um, and what were the various roles that these instructors played. So we observed at five of the school sites um, for half of a year for two consecutive years. So we went in spring semester of the first year, spring semester of the second year, um, and uh, are in the midst of collecting data this year, spring semester of the third year, um, uh, observing each site um, once or twice a week, depending on our people power. Um, it became an interesting kind of data collection task because most of our team were women, and we needed men to collect the data because our presence in the space actually changed it. And so, you yeah, we can talk about that. We also conducted interviews with two cohorts of students who were in the classes over two years. It's about, about a little over 20 kids um, we interviewed per year, which is about... About half of the total kids involved in the program. We also interviewed the instructors and program directors, and um, are in the midst of of data analysis, coding, um, looking at both the video and the interview data, um, and trying to figure out what's what's happening here. So I, I say that you know I'm going to talk in terms of where we are now, and I hope that it's coherent enough that you can that it's offering something for you. <laughs> Okay, um, I don't think I need to say much about that. I'm trying to make sure that I stay within my time. Um, one One of the sets of questions that we asked students in the interview was just to talk about their experience as black male students in schools. And again, what came out in those interviews really profoundly was the extent to which students were experiencing their school settings as racialized and the extent to which they felt like, By virtue of being black and male their teachers had low expectations for them and they gave example after example after example of this um, and that they perceived their teachers not to care about them and in particular felt like they were subject to racist stereotypes and unjust disciplinary action this issue of discipline came up so profoundly and so um, so consistently that it was the first paper we wrote on this is about the ways that students are experiencing um, discipline in their in their schools so this kid, this quote at the bottom. This kid says, "When they send us out on a referral, sometimes when they write down stuff on the referral, they kind of like put a little extra on it. You know, like even though we didn't do anything that bad, they try to seem like we did it a lot, like a lot worse." And you know, on the one hand, you kind of have to take like these are kids. These are kids who are getting in trouble. Maybe you take it with a grain of salt. They might be putting twenty on ten, as we used to say. Um, but on the other hand, it comes out so consistently in their perceptions that it's hard to ignore. So that, again, as, as a little bit of background, there was another also from the parent interviews, a parent who said that, um, talks about, and this is another thing that came up in Aliyah's work with parents was the extent to which, schools engaged in practices that were racialized and racist right and parents actually being really surprised like parents saying well i assumed that the, when the kid was saying the teacher doesn't like him that he was just not being a good student that he wasn't showing up like he should in class and i was giving him advice about how to show up differently and how what he should be doing and then i went and watched and i realized and i talked to the teacher and i realized this teacher doesn't like him <laughs> right and so parents actually made this transition from feeling like they could advocate what the school was they could support the teachers and be advocates for schools to feeling like they needed to protect their kids in relation to what was happening in schools. OK, so what characterizes the classrooms? i 'm going to talk about three kinds of things. Um, one is this issue of discipline, which again was the first and most striking thing that we observed, that these classroom spaces establish new kinds of dis- discipline practices, and we've come to talk about them as hybrid spaces, right So in some ways, they have some of the characteristics of school, but they also have some of the characteristics of these more, um, more student-friendly, youth development, after-school, informal learning spaces. And they've created this hybrid that's, that, that, that has within it a really effective set of discipline practices. The second is there's, there's very strategic and purposeful work being done to debunk or reframe stereotypes about black males and really explicit conversations about that. And third, which is probably the most powerful, I probably should have put it first, is this way that they are building community and multi-layered relationships with the students, between the instructors and the students, students, um, building a community within, within which students build different kinds of relationships with one another, and helping them see their role in the school context and in the world really differently. So I'll say just a little bit about each of those things and give you a couple of examples. The first is new kinds of discipline practices. So um, one important part of this establishing new kinds of discipline practices, which is really important because if you imagine, this is, this, um, some of these data I'm going to talk about now come from the first year of the study. And what was different between the first year and the second year is that in the first year, the vice principals chose the kids to be involved in these classes, and they took the kids who were just the worst, who were like doing the worst in the school. So you had all these kids who were totally disengaged who, you know, weren't going, you know, weren't, weren't going to class, weren't achieving at all. And kids who really, when you look a little closer, were just really beat up by the system. It felt like no matter what they did, they got in trouble. This one kid tells a story about yawning and, like, getting in trouble. And he's like, I just yawned. And, you know, and then the teacher said I was laughing and I wasn't laughing. It's was all of these, you know, stories. So, so anyway it was important for them to establish a different kind of disciplinary space. On the other hand, these were kids who run over a teacher. right? And so they also had to be a way of kind of establishing an authority. And so one of the first things that we noticed that that really stood out in what the, the instructors were doing is this reframing what counted as a disciplinary moment right so one example of this is one of the very first days of class this teacher who's fresh out of college and literally about this tall um, is like talking to the kids and he's excited he's got all this energy he's got this tennis ball and he's throwing it back and forth um, to kind of keep the kids attention and keep them engaged and someone in the back starts drumming on the desk right like keeping a beat I could I would do it but I can't really keep a beat um, and so we're like oh god what is he gonna do this kid is clearly kind of defying his authority and the instructor looks back at the kid and he says keep the beat going. And he starts talking to the beat of this kid drumming in the back. right? So he takes this moment that could have been a disciplinary moment and reframes it as something that's just a part of what we do. Like It's okay to express yourself physically in this space. I'm not going to penalize you, but it's gonna, but I'm going to include you in, in who we are and, and what we do here. A really powerful moment. And then you know the kid gets tired after a while, and he's like, what happened to the beat? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so many, many instances of um, or, or, you know, kids coming in late from another class, and, and instead of, like, getting that, why are you here, why were not you here, there's, like, what happened? Oh, you know, my teacher keeps us too long into swimming practice. Okay, well, let me talk to that teacher for you. So, again, taking this antagonism and making it the collective, making it I'm on your side, and I, and I kind of understand you. The discipline system that was established was mutually beneficial and shared. There were agreed upon norms and and consequences. (laughs) What's kind of interesting about that is one of the consequences that the students wanted was push ups. For, you know, if, if somebody violated community norms, they wanted to be able to do push ups as their punishment. The instructors, and this happened in several sites, I don't know where this comes from, but the instructors went with it. And, you know, on the one hand, it's kind of gendered in a particular kind of way. Um, but it meant that students were bought in, and they felt like they could do the push-ups and, like, be done, and it was okay, and then re-engage. The students came to hold one another accountable for the norms that they had established, um, norms around respecting one another and allowing, you know, if somebody's, somebody's turned to talk, you allow them to talk, um, norms around completing the work and the required assignments. And so when students started to violate those norms, they would come in and support one another in, in, in maintaining them. Um, building community, I'll talk a little bit more about that, aspects of the discipline system. Um, and, and the way that discipline got talked about in these settings was also really interesting in that the instructors wanted to make clear that discipline was happening not for the sake of discipline, but rather for the sake of supporting growth and getting the work done that we need to get done here. So the energy was like, this is our work, this is our space, let's respect our space, here's what we need to get done. And I know that you all want to do that with me, and we're going to do that as a, as a collective. Um, Uh, An important part of this was aligning with the students, recognizing the sometimes oppressive nature of school structures. So letting the students know that the the instructors understood the types of oppression that students were experiencing in their lives outside of this classroom. And um, there's a a good example of that. I think it comes on the next slide where the students are talking about um, the Trayvon Trayvon Martin incident and the way that another teacher takes up their way of kind of protesting the incident. And, and a final point I'll make about this is that instructors engage in a really purposeful re of students. Uh, and, and part of where this comes out is in their language with the students. So calling the students, sir, which is kind of a thing anyway. but So, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Um, and, 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 and also saying things like, um, you know, I've noticed, Carlton, that you are particularly good at... Um, critically analyzing what's happening around you and you might be a scientist or you I noticed that you really attend to you know keeping good relationships with your peers you should think about yourself as this and really kind of attributing these positive identities to the behaviors that the instructors are observing the students to be doing okay Um, I'm supposed to stop Let me just say a little bit about a couple more things and then I'll stop Instructors spent a lot of work explicitly debunking and reframing stereotypes about black males. It's so, so important because when we talk to kids, they often say that they don't talk about race in schools. And in these spaces, they talked about race. They talked about race a lot. Lots of explicit discussions about manhood, looking at media portrayals, analyzing ads. Um, uh, And so there were four types of stereotypes that we noticed our particular space for debunking happened. Black males as hard and unemotional. Uh, black males is anti-school, black males is not prioritizing the domestic sphere. So there's lots of recrafting around when you are a father, what kinds of decisions will you make? When you are a husband, what kinds of decisions will you make? When you're in this particular kind of job? So this kind of looking forward, um, you know, Michael Cole calls it prolepsis, right, where you're, you're projecting forward to what's going to happen in the future and then reshaping the current moment towards that future identity. Um, so the explosive discussions, I could say a lot about that, role modeling. So there was lots of attention to just the instructors themselves embodying an expanded notion of what it meant to be black and male. So sharing their own stories, sharing their stories about their relationships, sharing their stories about their, their own sets of experiences and, and bringing their extended network into the room. One of, our, um, <laughs> one of our researchers on the team is a real young guy, a um, grad student at Berkeley from Compton. And he continually, he's just there with the video camera trying to document that. He continually keeps get, getting brought into the conversation. Like, you know, Jarvis, tell them about your colleges. Jarvis, tell them about it, you know. And this way of, of, of kind of recruiting, um, uh, recruiting very explicitly folks into a network that complexify, oversimplify definitions of black maleness, right? And also, you know, these things, examples, like there's a, there's a moment when one of my other grad students comes in the room with her baby. And the instructor goes over and holds the baby, and the boys are like, dude, you're holding a baby? And so there's a conversation around being a, being a man doesn't mean you can't hold a baby, right? Um, and he talks about his kids as babies and changing diapers and whatnot. Um, and this piece about community that I'm just gonna say a tiny bit about. There was a lot of attention to what, we, what, we, what we're calling in the paper politicized caring. That is this idea that what they were doing, what their mission was there, was to invest in the whole child, to see their work as extending beyond the classroom towards developing these young people as people and as black males. A lot of attention to creating a safe space and feeling like, uh, recognizing that these kids don't have a safe, safe, necessarily have a safe space outside of this classroom in the rest of the school, and so making this a safe space. One example of that, kids coming in. greeted by the teacher, tells them you're in your safe space now so you can take your hoods off, get your arms out, which struck me because a lot of times when you're observing in school you see these kids with the hoods up tucked into their sweatshirts, right? And so this notion of you can take it off here recognizes this is a protective act, right? Not as an act of defiance, but as an act of protection. Um, So he he says to us, they may have had a tough day, but they're amongst family and everything's cool now. Or another teacher saying, my responsibility in terms of creating a culture where they felt safe, nurtured, that they could kind of let down that mask and not be or need to feel like they were on the block. Again, recognizing the various kinds of masks and and, um, protection students need outside. And the final is a student talking about one of the instructors. He seems like a big brother, a big brother to teach me. I feel like this class is like family. He's just watching out for all of us like we all family. And that notion of family came up again and again in the student interviews. So I think I'm going to stop there um, so that I can leave some time for questions. I know some people need to leave at one. But we can come back to this um, idea of, of this rehaling or repositioning that we observe there. Um, and the conclusions are not, not very profound, just that, you know, again, these racial storylines are prevalent. They're invoked in learning spaces but there's also this space for reproducing, reenacting, and that schools really need to engage in active support for students to build these counter-narratives of race and identity. So I will end there, thank you.
1: (laughs) Naila, thank you very much for such a um, Impressive discussion about where identity and learning connect, and to help us think about where we fit in this conversation and the work we do with um, students. So, questions. We're we'll open it for question and answer. Yes, ma'am. So, is there an um, an article or something where you talk more about the narratives? Oh.
0: Yeah, we're working on a lot of stuff right now. Um, I think the the paper that we're working on now will probably be the first place where we talk really explicitly about what those counter narratives look like and how they were kind of grown and fostered within these classroom spaces. So you know, not yet. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) we we're presenting on. We have a presentation coming up in a few weeks. So there'll be at least a draft of something floating around pretty soon.
1: Other questions? Yes, right in the back. You mentioned. You mentioned that about 90% of the time parents start this um, conversation with their kids about race once something has already happened. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering when is a better time to start that conversation and kind of
0: how? Yeah. um, Oh, I don't know. I got a lot of kids. Um, I guess I would say that what's interesting about that to me is it felt like parents were caught between – um, a paradigm that they knew from their own experience, which was race is really prevalent in my experience of the world, and what they hoped, how they hoped the world was different for their kids in this day and age. And so, the absence of talk about it was almost in the hopes that they wouldn't have to. Like this wasn't a conversation we need to have. So I guess I would just say that um, that that you, you as a parent, I imagine you want your kids not to be surprised. By these incidents but also not to be on edge waiting for them and so how you create both the preparation but with also a set of tools that that um, talks with them about what I mean you know the racial socialization literature talks about different kinds of ways that you prepare your kids to talk about race right one is um, this preparation for discrimination, so, you know, here's what's going to happen, here's how the world's going to see you, blah, 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 But there's also, like, the kind of cultural socialization, like, here's what it means to be African American. Here's music, food, and the, here's how we do, and here's our, our history, our legacy of standing up against oppression. Of, and so these more kind of positive socialization pieces are also really important. So it's not just about ways that it's negative, but building on, a, a, you know, this rich history and legacy would my, my two cents.
1: We use the mic we're taping, and then
2: I'll come to this side of the room. Hi, um, I was just wondering, I know that this, your work here is, is focused on Oakland Unified's manhood development program, and that it's the first district-wide um, program being implemented nationwide. I'm wondering if, you've, if your work has taken you in other communities that are doing similar work, not necessarily district-wide sponsored or endorsed, I'm just thinking of having come from Chicago and and listening to this work and knowing that there are colleagues out there that are doing this work, but more on a community org level, right? Um, School by school versus district wide, um, which is awesome that Oakland is, you know, this is all over. And as well as specifically in in Chicago, looking at Urban Prep, which is all male, predominantly African American charter school, Mm -hmm. and wondering how that correlates with some of what you found in, in your research or that's even been discussed or looked at and Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. Um, yeah no that's a great point I think that you're absolutely right this work is is being done lots of places um, nationwide and has been done for you know many many years my husband used to do this kind of work actually Um, uh, I don't know if I haven't seen any studies of urban prep that look um, at the level of kind of process like what's happening inside the classrooms I know that I've seen reports the kind of achievement reports I don't, I don't I don't know I don't know so I think that what's interesting about this work for me and what I think this work adds to the literature is just to say like what happens inside of these spaces right what what and what can we learn from them about potential new structures that are necessary new ways of interacting with students um, and new ways of understanding the experience students are having so um, I guess for me, then, what I'm talking about here is just an an illustration of the same stuff that you're saying happens lots of places in many different communities.
3: I'd be curious if you could um, speak to a little bit. On one of your earlier slides, you said a lot of times the kids would want to disprove disprove the narrative around not being able to achieve? Did you, do you have any sense of the blend of affinity for the material and the love of that material versus just the the, the brute force, if you will? How do I just achieve to get over in this system?
0: Mm, yeah, that's a good point. I don't, I don't really, I guess I, I get what you're getting at, right, the distinction between a commitment to kind of being a learner and being an engaged learner versus just achieve, achieving for the sake of achieving. Um, I kind of feel like the kid Darius that we talked about was, was maybe more on the um, achieving for the sake of achieving. But I also think sometimes as kids do that, they learn stuff, right? And then that changes their orientation to learning. I will say that I feel like the, what's being, what's being um, uh, kind of supported in the manhood development classes is, is the latter as well as the former. So there's encouragements around how to be different as a student. And how to manage the school system differently, but there 's also a lot about what are the things you need to learn, like what do you need to know and how exciting learning can be and and so I feel like these instructors are trying to uh, come at it from both of those angles
2: right here. You said the manhood initiative is funded by a partner, a community partner. do you have any idea what the cost is and then I also have some questions about: Is it after school? Um, and are and do the instructors have special training? Okay.
0: Um, so I don't, you know. I, and there was a point where I knew some of the numbers. It's not very much. It doesn't cost a tremendous amount to run these because the instructors aren't paid very well. Um, and again, they're only teaching the one period in the school day. And um, so um, it's funded by an outside grant at the moment. Um, instructors are not required to have particular kinds of prior training, but there is a, a set of kind of professional development activities that they undertake as a, as a part of kind of coming into the position. Um, those professional development sessions are really hard to schedule and organize because you have folks who are most, who, you know, people who are teaching one or two periods a day who have other lives who are teaching at other places or have other jobs and families. And so the finding the time for it has been challenging for the program. Um, the guy who's uh, the, the director who's heading up the professional development part as a former high school principal in the district. Um, and so he's, he's really masterful at making the most of the time that he has with them. Um, there's something, what was the other part of your question? Oh, you asked if they were after school. The classes are actually during the school day, so they're built into the kid's normal school schedule. And where it falls in the day varies tremendously depending on the site.
2: I was just wondering if you could tease out a little more about the term politicized caring that you used. I'm just Mm -hmm. curious about your decision to use the term politicized.
0: Yeah, we're, I mean, this is another paper, and we have like three papers (laughs) in some stage of doneness on this. Um, That is from one of the papers that is in some stage of doneness, so I'm not sure how much more articulate I could be about it, except to say that it comes from, you know, as we were thinking about, wait, where'd it go? We were thinking about, um, what is this that we're seeing? Like, how can we describe the ways that there's this clear kind of nurturing and caring and kind of love that happens in this space? But it's not just personal love. It's like love that's a part of a mission, that's a part of a kind of racial uplift mission, that's a part of um, social justice, a social justice mission. And so that's the term drawing on um, other folks um, that I can't cite off the top of my head in the moment. Uh, that was the term we are using to kind of get at both the way that this that it comes off as caring but in a in a in a very political, politicized, social justice oriented way.
1: Thank you, Naila. So I have a question about the front end and the back end of your work. because um, these mechanisms for caring for re socializing, seem to be very important. Um, and and this manhood development, what an interesting title, but the manhood mm-hmm. development in, uh, initiative seems to be a critical part. Do you see some sense of, uh, some change in the engagement of the kids in their traditional classrooms as a result of participation in these mm-hmm. programs? How are they, are, are you collecting any of their kind of grade or achievement data? We
0: are, we have, all, we have that data. It's mixed, um, to be perfectly honest. I could tell you the story that the district is telling. Um, but the, the truth is that it's mixed, and, and, and it's mixed for a number of reasons. One is because the classes look slightly different from site to site. Um, the the construction of the student population in the classes is really different from site to site. So I think I mentioned that in the first year, they recruited students who were, by and large, doing relatively poorly in school. In the second year, they decided maybe that wasn't so wise, and because it was, you know, like... <laughs> lifting a really heavy, wet towel. Um, So in the second year, they decided that they would take a third of the kids who were high-achieving, a third who were middle-achieving, and a third who were struggling, and that allowed them to create a different... um, to to have more to build on from within the room. That, I think, has been pretty uh, relatively successful. What's hard about it is it's one period a day, and then the kids go back out into these highly racialized school spaces, and they have... And there are skill issues, right? There's kids who have been poor, some of them are kids who have been poor performers for many, many years, and they've just missed a lot of just kind of skill development. And so finding ways to plug those holes is also really important. I mean, there have been some, so so I think at a couple of the sites, we are seeing um, improvements in uh, attendance and improvements in um, the number of disciplinary actions, which we're also tracking. Improvements in grades are harder, and I think they take longer, so we're not seeing a whole lot of that. Um, I think one of the sites has shown some improvements with respect to grades. Um, But we are having, but there are a lot of kind of anecdotal uh, incidents that show kids carrying some of the ways of being and speaking and thinking and thinking of themselves into other classroom spaces. Like there's this one kid who we interviewed the second year who talked about how one of the things he had learned in the class was when you when you speak when you address the class you you stand up and you speak to address the class so he started doing this in his other classes totally inappropriate (laughs) and and you know the teachers would were like a little surprised and the kids would laugh and he just kept doing it and he said eventually they they came to kind of respect him for it and it made him stood out stand out as a different kind of student so students are talking about the ways that they're taking some of the practices into other and their relationships with one another are also different and become powerful resources there's another piece that we're focusing the data collection on this year, which is the ways that these instructors become advocates for the students in the school space. So what they do with the students is not contained to the classroom space itself, but rather they're talking to other teachers and they're saying, "Okay, if you got this you got this D and you want to talk to the teacher about it, here's some things you should say. Here's a way to approach the teacher." No, 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 don't give up. Don't just you can go in and advocate for yourself. And so this way that, that they're um, both teaching the kids to advocate and manage the school system differently and the ways that they're supporting this, the, the students in doing that are also really powerful. The, the incident that I mentioned a little earlier about Trayvon Martin was that the, soon after that incident the kids decided that they were going to wear their hoodies to school. This is the, the, the middle school um, program. And in most of their classrooms this was fine. In one of the classrooms the teacher made them take it off. And when they went to the after-school site program, the Manhood Development program, afterwards and told the instructor this is what happened, he, <laughs> he said, oh, I'm going to go talk to him. You know? So there's this sense that I think, and, and students talk about it in the interviews, that they have an advocate. They have somebody that gets their experience and is willing to kind of say what it is right, to the other teachers in the school site. And that's also been, I think, pretty transformative. Other questions? Right here.
3: I'm uh, Just uh, curious about. Um, I remember you started your talk about like uh, relational like identities, like particularly in regards to race. So I'm curious because I know you've done a ton of work. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've seen any programs that kind of tried to kind of play towards that, so I'm thinking of like um, Angela Race's work on the other Asian, like and mm-hmm. deconstructing Asian-ness right. relative to math or Latino ness or right. you know like the relationship with like Tongans and Vietnamese in California in different settings. Mm-hmm. Um, just curious.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a good question. We should talk about that. Where this Casey is my student. He's like masquerading here as a Stanford student. This is my no. He was my undergrad a few years ago at Berkeley. He's working with Aleem now. Um, so we should talk about that. So I, I don't have a good answer, but it sounds like you have some. So I'm going to pick your brain about that.
1: Just in the back.
4: Um, Do you think it would be possible to extend um, this type of program to some place like Youth Uprising in Oakland that has the education programs where they're helping students get their GEDs and think about going on to post-secondary education? Do you see a way to replicate or extend into community-based organizations?
0: Yeah, I actually feel like this is working in the opposite direction. In some way it's because a lot of these the instructors are the same folks who work with youth uprisings or leadership excellence or many of the other really powerful youth organizations in Oakland. So I feel like what they're doing actually is taking the practices from those other organizations and kind of beginning to infuse them in a school setting. But they're definitely, I mean, you know, Oakland is small, all of these the communities overlap in really powerful and interesting ways.
4: So I guess just based on your answer, then maybe, you know, would it be possible to infuse um, a little more sort of academic mess right. oh, into um, community-based organizations?
0: Yeah. Um, it's funny because that, like, part of what I hear you saying that I very much agree with is that on the one hand, you need this work around how kids see themselves and how they see themselves in the world. And on the other hand, you know, what I was alluding to a moment ago, is you also need this kind of skills, academic um, building of capacity and of, um, of uh, kind of repertoires of academic practices, <laughs> right, to use Barbara Rogoff's term. Um, and so I think it is hard to find places that are doing both. Um, and I don't know. I don't know what that looks like in a community-based setting nor what it looks like in a school setting. You know, we do have I didn't talk at all about the variation between the instructors, which there's quite a bit of variation between the instructors. Like there's one instructor that very much emphasizes school and achievement and does a lot of talk with them around, you know, academic work and kind of managing the school environment, others that are much more about learning your history and your culture and and, and, and feeling empowered, um, so I think some balance there is, is necessary, and I don't know if I've seen a place that strikes it perfectly.
1: Yes, the gentleman.
4: To what extent um, have issues of language and culture been discussed in the program, and, and in particular, the, the you know the the use of uh, let's say contrastive analysis and the negotiating between? African-American language, and and standard academic English?
0: Hmm. (laughs) Yeah, one of the, I I, I think there's been a, to answer your question directly first, before I go off on a tangent, um, I think there's been a a bit of emphasis on that, that if I I think about what I've seen across the classrooms, I think a couple of the instructors have talked explicitly about that with students as a part of a conversation about kind of self-presentation Um, But what's been actually more interesting, I think, with respect to language has been the ways that the instructors code switch with the students. So where they're using language in ways that, that, that signify, like, I'm with you, I know you, we're from the same kinds of places, but then also pulling into the academic language that says, and here's how you talk in this space. And so that, I mean, if I, you know, I should get with somebody who really can do, like, a good... Discourse analysis, or something, because it's fascinating to watch the instructors' um, linguistic flexibility in these spaces, and to accomplish, you know, kind of this range of purposes.
1: Yeah. Was there a question in the back row? Okay. Question
4: over here? yes. Okay. Hi. Thanks for this really, really important. Um, work and sharing it so we can get it Um, and building a little bit on my neighbors question um, I'm thinking about what about teaching the teachers in the classrooms Mm -hmm. that so you're talking about having to go back and um, deal with this and there are things to learn that aren't aren't that difficult and um, you know we've been constructing these kids in such a negative way. And I'm also thinking about integrated classrooms. I mean we're getting Mm -hmm. more and more segregated again so it's easy to find segregated (laughs) classrooms and certainly because black males have been the target, they deserve extra special help here. But like we you know, if they didn't have to deal with a self perception because of practices in the classrooms, relationships in the classroom, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't (laughs) they wouldn't need the course so much. So do you think there's any hope? I mean this is a huge structural issue. Um, but it's also a cultural change issue. Do you have yeah. any hopes for something like that?
0: Yeah, I think it, you know it's, it's both, it's an important question, it's both a, a cultural change issue and a structural change issue, right? And so a couple of things come to mind. Um, one is that the, the um, African American Male Initiative is very much I think they started out with it actually an even stronger push towards professional development than where they got to because I think they got frustrated by how to make that happen. Like, what does that look like in terms of how you, how you get people to examine those biases and practices in, in a way that's robust. So I think that's been a real challenge for them. On the other hand, you know, we've been working with them in other ways um, to kind of help support um, – the gathering of data around what teachers in the district are doing really well, in particular with black male students, and what do their practices look like. So we did a little mini study with them on that, just looking at six teachers who were really successful and um, were able to at least give them something um, on that. Um, I say it's it's also a structural issue because you know it's really hard to it's really hard to get rid of teachers who are not strong and are, and, and are not strong with this population of students right and so the director of the um, of the initiative has kids in the district his, his own children are are kids in the district three three boys two girls I think and um, he decided early on that there was this one uh, one teacher in this one school that was just the kids were just you know, he was just horrible, just awful, just racist, just, and, and pushed really, really hard to get this teacher removed, right? So eventually, the teacher's removed and lands at his kid's school, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> So he was like, what? what? Um, so I, I think that that's a, I think it's definitely where we need to go, right, to think about, and, and I think at the level of what are the practices? Because I think when you start talking about race and racism, people's hackles go up. And it's really hard to be open to change when you feel like you're being called a racist. Right? So I think tar- sitting at the level of what are the practices that seem to work really well that are um, both about supporting African-American male students, but also really just about supporting students, because they look the same right, in, in some ways, um, that that might be one way to, to, to have this conversation with teachers. But it's really it's a challenge at the level of kind of institutional change.
1: But aren't they under an OCR complaint, I an mean, OCR are. settlement? Yeah, and So think about how the structural piece fits in there.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, the focus, from my understanding, is, is that's primarily on the discipline practices and the discipline okay. systems. Um, but, you know, what's interesting if you think about this initiative with respect to the district is that it doesn't have a lot of resources, right? right. And so the, the OCR um, uh, complaint... Got the, the leadership to addressing it actually got, got attached to the director of this program in addition to the other duties without any extra resources. So then you, you think, well, what kind of change is possible without the resources to really support that change? It's really challenging, really challenging.
1: And I use the initials. I apologize. It's Office of Civil Rights. And that was settled, I want to say, in the fall
0: maybe? There, there was an yeah. a, right. There was an a, a, agreement about a set of changes that would need to happen district-wide to mitigate um, racial disparities in um, discipline, disciplinary actions.
3: Yeah. Other questions? Yes. Yeah, I'd like to uh, sort of piggyback on Dorothy's question. And again, I'm thinking about the role of the teacher as the mm-hmm. primary mediator of the space. And I'm wondering whether it, we're dealing with conceptual challenges as, you know, as a profession. And that mm-hmm. the meaning that we assign to the teacher's behavior may shape the way in which we approach the problem. So that is that if we see the teacher as racist, rather than dealing with their own threat issues, we might Mm -hmm. approach the teacher differently. And so for me, there's a way to talk about Mm upskilling. So upskilling a teacher's ability to conceptually understand the issues of race, but also to navigate the sort of affective or emotional dissonance that comes up when race is put on the table. And because, Mm -hmm. quite frankly, if, if they haven't been in the conversation with some frequency and regularity, it's a pretty scary conversation. But I would also argue that you can increase one pers- a person's capacity to navigate that conversation. So I'm wondering yeah. if maybe we're dealing with a, with a conceptual issue in terms of the way we're defining the problem.
0: Yeah. I'm yeah, no, I think that's really powerful. That's a really powerful way to understand it. It makes me think about the diversity project at Berkeley High, right? Where there was a lot of attention to kind of creating these new kinds of conversations. And what you run up against at some point in a system is whose privilege is going to be disrupted, mm-hmm. right? and whose privilege is going to be maintained. And so it takes these struggles that are partially about one thing and, and brings to light what they're, what they're also about. <laughs> so, within, so in a district like Oakland, we actually have a superintendent who's really very much concerned with um, creating greater equity. And, and again, what you run up against is whose privilege is going to be disrupted and, and what happens after that, right? What will people do to defend their privilege?
1: um, Sorry, um, you said that for this program um, it's African American boys with African American men as the instructors or mentors or coaches Uh and so sort of piggybacking on this other discussion then is what happens to these kids when they now go into a classroom where there isn't the African American male as a figure and it's who knows who's the teacher so it's all part of the same problem now how does that teacher get credibility, even if they were aware of some of these issues, right. which meant some are, many aren't, Right, right. Um, how, do they, how do they get influence with these kids as well? Yeah,
0: I mean, I guess I should say in response to that, there's something that, that, being, that sharing race and gender with kids buys you, but it doesn't buy you everything, right? So it's not just that these men are black men and automatically kids are like, oh, I trust you. It's actually about what they're doing. Like it's about what they're doing and what they're saying. And, um, and so I, I do think that is um, – I wouldn't say that what, what this means is that we need to have black male teachers teaching all black male students, right, that that's what they need because that's who they're going to fall in line for, but rather there's something about having someone that understands your experience and sees it as real and is willing to support you in understanding it in deeper and fuller ways and help you manage it that's really powerful for kids. And so I, I think coming from the perspective of – what they are managing is different than what I would have managed as a student, different than what, and it's actually a thing. It's a real thing that they are treated differently on the school campuses and to kind of just acknowledge what that, the, the, the burden that they feel and that they are really experiencing in being in black male bodies in schools, that a, that's a real thing. And, uh, and seeing that, not, and I think that they get read as defiant when um, when it's inappropriate. The gentleman in the
3: back. Another question around discipline in schools: Have you collected data or done much observation around management of thresholds for intervention? So teacher to principal, principal to police, so on. Mm. You know how that propagates, or if it's managed appropriately, how you can kind of quell, if you will, some insurgency right. in the classroom before it has to rise and they get into a higher level system of.
0: Right. Yeah. No. Not. Um, not yet um, actually in the midst of the planning phases of a project that's a collaboration with um, John Powell at Berkeley that'll be looking at some of the community schools in Oakland um, and thinking very much about this issue of kind of neighborhood safety, school safety and violence, what systems are set up in schools that are managing risky riskier neighborhoods um, and so really being able to look more closely at those multi-layered processes that you're talking about. So a couple of years (laughs) down the line.
1: Anyone else have time for one more question? Did I miss anyone? No? Okay, thank you all very much for coming. Um, And thank you to Maria. And there, there are posters.